The GOP won't bite on the Democratic voting bill. Eric Adams gets a bite of the apple. And Biden offers a plan to take a bite out of crime. With apologies to Marv Albert, it's a bite me edition of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, and Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 368 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. To no one's surprise, the GOP blocked the Democrats' voting rights bill in the Senate, with all 50 Republicans against debating the measure and all 50 Democrats voting to debate it. The fact is, Republicans were never going to vote for this bill, and the Democrats had to know it. While ostensibly written to combat the GOP efforts around the country to restrict access to voting, it had stuff in it that was just anathema to the Republicans. They were not going to support federal funding of congressional elections, and they were not going to vote for a measure that would end partisan redistricting. And why would they, considering they control most of the states that will draw the new congressional lines for next year? Within minutes of it becoming clear that the Republican filibuster was in effect, Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer took to the floor. I want to be clear about what just happened on the Senate floor. Every single Senate Republican just voted against starting debate, starting debate on legislation to protect Americans' voting rights. Once again, The Senate Republican minority has launched a partisan blockade of a pressing issue here in the United States Senate, an issue no less fundamental than the right to vote. Let's face it, the bill was far from what the Democrats advertised, but Schumer was more on the money with this. Republican state legislatures across the country are engaged in the most sweeping voter suppression in 80 years capitalizing on and catalyzed by Donald Trump's big lie. These state governments are making it harder for younger, poorer, urban, and non-white Americans to vote. For Ted Cruz, it was a great day. Mr. President, I rise today to celebrate a win for the country. Today, the United States rightly failed to advance the Corrupt Politicians Act, meaning that this bill will not come to the Senate floor for a final vote. This is a huge win for the citizens of the United States. This is a huge win for democracy, and it's a huge win for the integrity of our elections. The Corrupt Politicians Act is the most dangerous legislation we've considered in the Senate in the nine years I've served in this body. It's an attempt by Senate Democrats at a brazen power grab. It's an attempt by Democrats to federalize elections and to ensure that Democrats won't lose control for the next 100 years. This bill isn't about protecting the right to vote. It's precisely the opposite. It's about taking away the right to vote from the citizens and giving it instead to the corrupt politicians in Washington who want to stay in power. But Democrats are not giving up. In fact, they may be rallying around a new attempted compromise 
by West Virginia's Joe Manchin, whose own bill gets rid of the redistricting and public financing ideas and agrees to a voter identification plan that his party has long fought, but which Republicans have long insisted upon. But if the GOP blocks that one as well, then there may be even more of an effort by the Democrats to tinker with, if not dispose of, the filibuster. Because of ranked choice voting, we don't have a declared winner in New York City's Democratic primary for mayor just yet, and in fact we may not know officially who won until mid-July. Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough President, finished first on Tuesday, but acknowledged that there's still a ways to go. We know that this is going to be layers. This is the first uh, early voting count. We know that. We know there's going to be uh, twos and threes and fours. We know that. But there's something else we know. Take your time. That New York City said our first choice is Eric Adams. Adams, who is black, ran a tough-on-crime campaign. He was seen as a much more moderate choice than the candidate currently in second, Maya Wiley, the former chief counsel to outgoing mayor Bill de Blasio. Wiley is also black and is hoping to become the city's first female mayor. She was backed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressives. Third place was the former sanitation commissioner, Catherine Garcia, and Andrew Yang, who ran for president last year and who had entered the mayoral race as the frontrunner, is currently well back in fourth place. He said that while we don't really know who the next mayor will be just yet, he knows it won't be Andrew Yang. I am conceding this race, though we're not sure ultimately who the next mayor is going to be, but whoever that person is, I will be very happy to work with them to help improve the lives of the 8.3 million people who live in our great city. And I would urge everyone here to do the same. The Republican nominee is Curtis Sliwa, the founder of the Guardian Angels, the crime prevention safety patrol group. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, and you thought we can go an episode without mentioning him, Donald Trump will be in Northeast Ohio on Saturday evening for a rally on behalf of Max Miller, the former White House aide challenging Congressman Anthony Gonzalez, one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. But the rally really is on behalf of Trump, who has been saying to anyone who would listen that he plans to run for president again in 2024. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who was the last defeated president who later ran to regain his office? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. You know, if you break my heart, I'll go. I told you once before goodbye, but I came back again. The pressure was becoming unbearable. Progressives were pleased with the job being done on the Supreme Court, but age and health had become factors. And the prospect of Republicans regaining the Senate and even the White House after that was getting worrisome. 
So they decided it was time for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire. It was 2014. Step down, the liberals implored, while we still have the Senate and the White House. Here was Professor Erwin Chemerinsky of the University of California, Irvine, on PBS in October of 2014. If the Republicans take the Senate in November, President Obama's ability to pick her successor be greatly constrained. If a Republican wins the presidency in 2016, a conservative would then be taking her place. This isn't about her ability to be a terrific justice. This is the question of how long is it likely she'll stay on the court and who will replace her. She's 81 years old. If the Republicans take the Senate, if a Republican is elected in 2016, it seems highly unlikely that a Democratic president will be able to pick a progressive for her seat. But Ginsburg would have no part of it, as she told CBS's Jane Pauley. I don't think that a justice should have uppermost in her mind. A Democratic president appointed me, so I must leave to be sure that another Democratic president can appoint my successor. I will do this job as long as I feel that I can do it full steam. At my age, you have to take it year by year. So this year, I know I'm fine. What will be next year or the next year, I can't predict. But here's something we should have been able to predict. When conservative Justice Antonin Scalia died in February of 2016, President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to succeed him on the court. Mitch McConnell, who by the Republicans winning back the Senate in 2014, was the majority leader, refused to allow any hearings, let alone a vote, on Garland's nomination. He said because it was a presidential election year, it should be up to the new president to fill the seat. The new president, Donald Trump, was able to get his choice, Neil Gorsuch, on the bench the following year. Fast forward to September of 2020. Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that she did everything she could to survive the Trump presidency. But after several bouts with cancer, she could not. And McConnell, to no one's surprise, pushes through Trump's choice to succeed her, even though it is less than two months before the election. This time, McConnell says, oh, well, this one is different because the Senate and the president are of the same party. So it's okay. The overwhelming hypocrisy notwithstanding, Amy Coney Barrett then becomes Trump's third justice on the Supreme Court. Last week, the McConnell logic struck again. Here's an excerpt from an interview with McConnell earlier this month by the conservative Hugh Hewitt. Let me ask you, if you regain the majority in 2022 for the Republicans, and there's a very good chance of that happening, I'll come back to the individual races in a second, would the rule that you applied in 2016 to the Scalia vacancy apply in 2024 to any vacancy that occurred then? Well, I think in the middle of a presidential election, if you have a Senate of the opposite party of the president, you have to go back to the 1880s to find the last time a vacancy was filled. So I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, no, I don't think either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. That, uh, what was different in 2020 was we were of the same party as the Correct. president, yeah. and that's why we went ahead with it. 
Now, let me ask you about the key thing, leader, about the 2023 term. Again, if you are back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, that would be the Anthony Kennedy precedent. Would they get a fair shot at a hearing, not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal? Well, we'd have to wait and see what, what happens. He said it. No Biden court nominee should an opening occur in 2023 or 2024, as long as McConnell is Senate Majority Leader. And that set off a whole lot of liberal anger and panic. Ruth Marcus, the deputy editorial page editor for The Washington Post, came to a completely new position for her. It feels rude, she wrote, to be trying to shove someone off the bench simply because you've decided they're too old to risk keeping around. But she pointed to Ginsburg's situation. So what's it going to be, she asked. Take your chances and risk leaving a vacancy to the wiles of McConnell, who has already demonstrated he will stop at nothing to prevent a Democratic president from naming a justice. Marcus made it clear where she stood. Christine Chabot has been considering this as well. She teaches at the Loyola University Chicago School of Law and is the author of a 2019 study entitled do justices time their retirements politically? Professor Chabot joins us now. Welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry you had to sit through that, that, in, that very long intro, but I wanted to set up what's going on right now. And, and as you know, usually vacancies occur on the Supreme Court because of death, as in the case of Justice uh, Ginsburg or Scalia, or a desire to step down for personal reasons, as Anthony Kennedy did in 2018. But leaving the court because of politics, in order to make sure your replacement is of the same ideology as you, that doesn't happen. Right. And uh, I think there are a lot of different kind of factors that might go into a justice decision to retire or not. But one of the big things to keep in mind is that, like, unlike other political actors, justices are independent. They don't answer to voters or presidents, for that matter. So if you're a justice and you spend your entire career explaining what you do in non-political terms, then why would you decide to do something differently when it comes to retirement? So there's a lot of evidence that justices are independent when it comes to retirement. And, of course, no justices really you know, announce political motives for retirement. But one thing people look at sometimes is whether justices time their retirement politically. Do they step down when the president who will appoint their replacement shares the justice's ideology and is thus really likely to appoint a like-minded successor. Um, also, as we saw in the case of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, she probably would have preferred, all else being equal, to have you know, someone like me be her replacement. The problem is that what she liked even more was to remain on the court. She didn't want to step down during the Obama administration to lock in her best chance of a like-minded replacement. She was willing to take her chances. And now we saw how that turned out. Ultimately, you know, her health didn't allow her to hold on until the Trump administration ended, and she was therefore uh, replaced by uh, an appointee, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who was nominated by President Trump. I mean, I remember thinking it was a bit unseemly to see all those progressives, you know, all those people who worshipped and, and adored Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 
They urged her to quit while Obama was still president. And they said, well, look, she had bouts with cancer. Her health was always a concern. And oh, my goodness, Republicans could possibly win the Senate and the White House, which they did. So and Donald Trump, as you point out, named her replacement and Amy Coney Barrett. First of all, aside from what the justices decide to do ultimately, what did you make of that pressure from the left? Did you see it as unseemly? Did you understand it? So I, I think the pressure that's put on justices to retire often can backfire, and I think that may have been something that occurred with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it is certainly a risk with a lot of the calls now for Justice Breyer to retire. Justices do not like to appear political. If you, if you read any of their opinions, they do not express their decisions on the court in political terms. And even sometimes uh, the recent case of California versus Texas, we had a surprising result, right, where it was a 7-2 decision on the Affordable Care Act and some of the justices that people expected to have a conservative vote actually joined Justice Breyer's opinion and uh, declined to review the, the merits of the challenge of the act because of standing. So, um, so justices, uh, they, they don't like to have their retirements uh, either be viewed in political terms. I mean, in fact, there are a couple examples of um, historical instances where justices seemed to have timed their retirements to avoid appearing overly political. So going back to Chief Justice Warren, he had met with President Johnson to try to retire uh, before the end of the Johnson administration. When they weren't able to get his replacement confirmed before the end of President Johnson's term, there's a dilemma. That was the Abe Fortas problem. Yes, yes. So there was, uh, they, they tried to have uh, Abe Fortas confirmed as his replacement. That didn't work out. And so then uh, President Nixon was elected, and Chief Justice Warren faced a dilemma. He had submitted his resignation letter to President Johnson, expecting that President Johnson would name his replacement. Johnson wasn't able to do so before Nixon became president. And then uh, Warren ultimately honored his earlier retirement, her resignation letter, and uh, retired to President Nixon because he didn't want to appear partisan in his retirement decisions. And you, you might say a, a similar thing about Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's retirement decision. There were rumors that in uh, 2000 she was thinking of stepping down if President Bush won the election. And then uh, there's, of course, the case of Bush v. Gore and a lot of political controversy. And she, she didn't retire during President Bush's first term. She waited until his second term in, I believe, 2005. So, again, she was trying to avoid the idea that, you know, she is going to step down all of a sudden now because there is a Republican president in the White House. So justices do not like to have political appearances surround their retirement decisions, and that there could be a factor or concern for Justice Breyer right now as he may be weighing what to do at the end of this term. The fact that Justice Breyer once worked for Ted Kennedy, and you, you, know, you kind of have a sense of where Justice Breyer stands politically, he certainly can't announce his retirement while uh, Joe Biden is still president 
uh, and the Democrats control the Senate and then rescind his retirement uh, should the Republicans take control of the Senate or the White House. I mean, obviously, I mean, that would be ultimately political. But I mean, poor Justice Breyer, he's he's in, he's not in bad health. I mean, his health is fine. They just want, they, I think the progressives just need to act now because they're so afraid of Mitch McConnell becoming the majority leader again. And as you say, I mean, you know, if that's the reason they want Breyer to step down. Uh, and there's also the problem that what uh, Mitch McConnell is doing is really politicizing the Supreme Court. He's giving people the appearance that uh, the next justice of the United States will be elected. And I'm sure that's something that, you know, if Mitch McConnell were to carry out this strategy, I don't doubt that both uh, nominees, uh, people running for president, would uh, be bringing up, if you vote for me, I am going to you know, fill this vacancy with a particular type of justice. And the court also, the justices don't like that politicization of the court or the appearance that you know, the, the court is really a kind of uh, political object in that way. So there's a lot of costs that uh, come with the McConnell strategy. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious if for Breyer, uh, is he concerned about that? I mean, so, so maybe, you know, no matter what he does, there's a potential political mess. Um, if he steps down now, will, will people think he's stepping down for political reasons or due to political pressure? Um, on the other hand, if he you know, stays on the court indefinitely, as you say, his health is good right now, but at 82 years of age, you never really know. Uh, so, so we don't know. I mean, if he um, were to have uh, serious health problems, in an election year and had to step down from the court uh, and, and the uh, Republicans also controlled the Senate, it would just create kind of a different political mess where you would have uh, an election that was focused on, you know, who's going to get to name the next justice of the Supreme Court and also this vacancy on the court, uh, two things that are undesirable from an institutional perspective. So, so I kind of wondered in some ways, uh, you know, would uh, Mitch McConnell's announcement give Breyer a different reason to retire. You know, you mentioned uh, that, you know, if, if Breyer did step down, the, uh, the republic would survive if the, if the court had only eight members instead of nine. Other Democrats are talking about, you know, expanding the court from nine to 13. I mean, I'm thinking if the Democrats were to expand the court to 13, while they had control, what would prevent the Republicans from expanding it to 20 when they took control? So that would that would just be a tit for tat that can go on forever. Right, right. And uh, I mean, there have been proposals to expand the court uh, before. And it's actually happened before. We at one point in the 19th century, there were, were 10 justices on the court. So, so sometimes that has happened. That's something that Congress has the ability to do. And uh, you're, you're right, though, it, uh, if uh, the court becomes something that each party is trying to assert more control over, uh, creating new seats while you're in power is one way to do it. But as soon as your party loses control, then maybe they will just create new seats and it'll just be a, a bigger and bigger uh, Supreme Court. And uh, uh, it probably would make it more politicized in those terms as well. It just seems like the progressive wing of politics just seems to be taking a beating. First, you know, they 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 uh, they watched Ginsburg stay on the court and then die and then being replaced by conservative. And I think back to 1991 when when Thurgood Marshall announced his retirement, uh, who's a Thurgood Marshall, a very liberal member of the court, and then just days later, President Bush names Clarence Thomas as his successor. 
Do you know, well, first of all, do you know if there was similar pressure on Marshall to hold off from retiring until after the 92 election? Uh, you know, actually, Marshall is kind of an earlier version, I think, of Justice Ginsburg, because he, there were rumors, at least, that people in the Carter administration reached out to Justice Marshall and urged him to step down before Reagan took office so that the Carter administration could name his replacement. And at that time, Justice Marshall hadn't been on the bench for a particularly long tenure, I believe 12 years. He was relatively young as well, I think 72 years old. However, he had had some ongoing health issues and the Carter administration hadn't had a chance to name any Supreme Court justices. So the rumor was that they approached Justice Marshall, but when a reporter called Justice Marshall to ask him about his retirement plans, he adamantly said that he planned to serve for life. That was the tenure given to him by the Constitution, and he planned to serve out his term, um, which he tried to do until, unfortunately, in 1991, his health declined to the point where I believe there's pressure from his wife and doctor for him to step down. So, uh, so I don't think he wanted to step down, whether it was because he wanted to kind of perpetuate his, his own um, political views on the court or whether he just viewed life tenure literally and wanted to uh, remain on the court as long as he could. Um, but, you know, health intervened and uh, forced his hand. Another justice in, that retired to the Bush administration was uh, Justice Brennan as well, who you know, could have retired during the Carter administration after a relatively long tenure. He decided to stay in the court and, uh, again, met the same fate of having to retire to a more conservative administration. I, I just think of, I mean, the thought of replacing uh, Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas and, re, and replacing a possible Merrick Garland uh, with Neil Gorsuch uh, I mean, I'm just, it just seems like the, the left keeps saying that, you know, we keep losing these battles over and over again. And I think that's where what they're so afraid of. Tell me what you think of the decision by some on the left to pressure Breyer into retiring. And do you think for a second Breyer would succumb to it? So I think the people that are making kind of these crass political pitches like the Breyer retired truck uh, driving around Washington, D.C., should, should stay their hand. They should back off. Uh, Justice Breyer is a justice of the Supreme Court. He's a judge, and he's going to make up his mind independently. And I, I think the political pressure that people are putting on him could, could well backfire and just drive him to remain on the court. And again, think back to, to Justice Warren or Justice O'Connor. Other justices have in the past timed their retirement to avoid the appearances of being overly political. Um, now, now, what's in Justice Breyer's mind? Uh, that, that's a little more difficult to predict. Um, I, I don't see him looking out his window and seeing the Breyer retired truck and thinking that that will change his mind or his calculus. Although one of the interesting things I, I thought is in an earlier interview, Justice Breyer did say that he, he did plan to retire. He was just not sure when. So, so maybe there is uh, some idea of a retirement in mind. He's not like Justice Marshall insisting that he is going to serve for life and, you know, perhaps especially some of the new statements made by Mitch McConnell, perhaps uh, that will make Justice Breyer think that this year is a good year to step down. Christine Chabot teaches at the Loyola University Chicago School of Law 
and is the author of a 2019 study entitled, Do Justices Time Their Retirements Politically? Christine, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. You're pushing too hard for pushing on me. You're pushing too hard on what you want me to be. You're pushing too hard about the things you say. You're pushing too hard every night and day. You're pushing too hard, pushing too hard on me. It's time to reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question, which was... Who was the last presidential in-law to run for the Senate? The answer, Edward Cox. The son-in-law of Richard Nixon, he's married to Tricia Nixon, Cox sought the Republican nomination for the Senate in New York in 2005 to take on incumbent Democrat Hillary Clinton. But he dropped out of the race when GOP Governor George Pataki endorsed another candidate. And the randomly selected winner is David Vasquez of Raleigh, North Carolina. David wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the political junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. will show that Americans don't necessarily trust or admire the media. A recent Gallup survey said that 6% give journalists a very high rating when it comes to honesty or ethical standards, while 22% rated them very low. And although widespread disdain for journalists did not necessarily begin with Donald Trump, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Because they are the fake, fake Disgusting news. He certainly didn't help. Of course, Donald Trump is hardly the first president to have problems with journalists, though his attacks may have crossed a line. But once upon a time, there was a newspaper columnist by the name of Drew Pearson, one of the most widely followed and most controversial and perhaps most hated, certainly most feared, journalist in history. FDR once called him a chronic liar. While Pearson spent decades holding the powerful accountable, he used every method in the book, including uncorroborated rumor and unproven innuendo. Some of his targets were innocent, but he also went after Joe McCarthy, and he helped bring down people like James Forrestal, Truman's Secretary of Defense, and Senator Thomas Dodd, Democrat of Connecticut. His 40-year career had many highlights. Here he was in April of 1945. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Drew Pearson, Berlin. The Red Army tonight is advancing up Berlin's three main boulevards with the greatest carnage history has ever seen. I can state that the American Ninth Army patrols had been in the suburbs of Berlin one week ago, but withdrew following a request from Stalin and because of an agreement previously made at Yalta that Berlin was to be occupied by the Russians. At that time, February, it was never expected that American troops would get to Berlin first. These facts being reported in my column today and tomorrow, were denied by Allied headquarters in Paris today, as I fully expected they would be. But they came to me from the highest quarters, and I repeat them as absolutely correct. Here's an excerpt from his Washington merry-go-round program in 1953. Well, with Congress back in town, the news is certainly breaking. 
Eisenhower has finally decided that he has to get his program through con Congress at any cost, and here are the developments. He has finally picked a successor to Senator Taft. And the man he has picked is none other than the Vice President, Mr. Nixon, who a year ago, his name was Mutt. But today, he's the white-haired boy around the White House. And here he is in 1969, a couple of months before his death, on the Dick Cavett Show. You've often said about Adam Clayton Powell, uh, or uh, you haven't always said this, but others have, that uh, he was no more corrupt than uh, white uh, politicians, and that was, some, that was a cliche that was said about him many times. Um, do you feel that's true uh, now? In reading your book, I, I gather that it would be hard to be more corrupt than uh, the rest of the politicians in Washington. Well, Adam, Adam Clayton Powell really tried to do what some white men have done. For instance, he got, uh, he was kicked out of Congress for finagling with $25,000 worth of airplane credit cards. But uh, some of the other congressmen just get free airplane trips. For instance, Congressman Mendel Rivers of South Carolina, who was chairman mm -hmm. of a very important committee, the Air Force gives him a whole free private plane when he wants to go down to Charleston. So um, Adam didn't really do anything more than some of the others. He, he, he did wrong. Are, you, uh, are people fearful of you in Washington? Well, I don't. They shouldn't be. I don't know. Some of them are, I guess. When you enter a room, do you see people go, there's Pearson, and they straighten up and <laughs> well, put things thought, away? You, usually it's the other way around. I look around to see whether Tom Dodd is in the room or somebody like that, mm -hmm. whether I should get ready to um, give, give him the cold freeze, as he was sure to give it to me. Yeah. And uh, no, I don't think people are fearful of me anymore. Some are. Have you had stories that are too hot to handle? Have you ever had to sit up at night and just think, I just can't print this, even though as a newspaper man it would... Uh, no, usually I can print them, but the question is whether some papers will publish them. Mm. <laughs> Have you had that frequently? Oh, yes. I remember the first uh, columns on Senator Dodd. Uh, one or two papers didn't publish at all. Donald Ritchie has written a great new biography entitled The Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington. Don is the historian emeritus of the United States Senate, and he's the author of many books, including my favorite, Press Gallery, Congress and the Washington Correspondence. He was on The Political Junkie last year to talk about the late Senator Robert Byrd. And he's back again with his new book. Don, it's great talking to you again. Well, it's good to be here. Well, thank you, Don. And you know something? I mean, I love, obviously, uh, the, the subject of journalism and politics and how they intertwine. And, and, you know, there are certainly some newspaper columnists of note these days, but I can't think of anyone who made the powerful shake in their boots like Drew Pearson. No, he was unique. Uh, you know, his column appeared every single day, even weekends and holidays. And it appeared in over 600 newspapers. A lot of politicians wouldn't have minded as much if he only appeared in the Washington newspapers. But he tended to, his column appeared in the papers that their constituents read. And the news was likely to get back home. What do you think made him so feared and, and so informed? He was just determined to tell the story that nobody else wanted to tell. He thought that the press of his day, when he got started in the 20s and the early 30s, he thought the press was too deferential to politicians. And that when the politicians put out press releases, reporters would, report, would just reproduce them. He wanted to find out what was behind the press release. 
he was sure that people were holding things back. And he had a great sense of smell. And he said when something didn't smell right, that's when he went after the story. Well, his career spanned from the presidencies of Herbert Hoover to Richard Nixon. Uh, and here's a quote from your book. Two fellow Quakers whom he liked the least and tormented the most. But he didn't limit his contempt for just Republicans, right? No, in fact, because his actually his a column appeared in many newspapers that leaned towards Republicans. He really was bipartisan. But in his day, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party had liberal wings and conservative wings. Pearson was a liberal Democrat uh, by nature, a New Dealer, but he had lots of friends among liberal Republicans. You wrote that he was a registered Republican, right? He was. He registered as a very young man in Pennsylvania. And then when he moved to, to the District of Columbia, his, his politics were changing, but he couldn't vote in the district. So it's not till the 1960s when he could vote that he actually formally registered as a Democrat. But his friends were largely in the Democratic Party. Although, as I say, he had a lot of Republican friends who were uh, on, the, on the liberal side. And he actually was an equal opportunity investigator. He attacked uh, liberal Democrats as well as, as conservatives if he thought that they were had crossed the line, if they were doing something wrong. And he certainly perplexed liberal presidents just as much as he did conservatives. Well, you, you point out that FDR called him a chronic liar. Uh, Harry Truman sent the FBI to investigate him. Uh, did anybody like him? <laughs> well, yes, he had a lot of friends, actually. And that's how he got a lot of his, his information. He had a, a circle of friends in particular who were Washington, high-powered Washington lawyers, and he said the remarkable thing about lawyers is they talked among themselves about their clients. And other lawyers didn't mind breaking lawyer confidentiality by talking about the other people's clients. So he got a lot of backroom gossip from fairly prominent uh, uh, attorneys in the, in the city, many of whom had served in the government at different times and would then be critical of the new administration. He had friends on the Supreme Court. He had friends in the in the Senate. He had friends in the cabinet. He would be out dining, uh, having lunch with cabinet members the day after stories had appeared in the column exposing some of the internal discussions in the cabinet. So uh, he had a, a remarkably wide circle of people who were providing him with information. You know, there was this fascinating article in the uh, Times this week about how Tucker Carlson, uh, he of Fox News, the fact that he has long been one of the biggest sources of dirt about Trump and Fox News for reporters, despite his fealty to, you know, to all things Trump. <laughs> jo and, and also Joe McCarthy, as you wrote, was, was, you know, was known to deal in, uh, in hearsay and gossip with reporters, many of whom hated his guts. But, but I don't know if Pearson spoke to—I think, think you wrote that Pearson spoke to McCarthy as well and got stuff right. from him. For a while, uh, Pearson liked McCarthy because McCarthy was a great source on Capitol Hill. He would actually let uh, Pearson's legman, Jack Anderson, listen in on his phone calls. So Anderson would hear what the other senators were saying, and McCarthy could say, well, I didn't leak it because Anderson was actually on the, on the line. <laughs> and so when, when uh, uh, Pearson was really offended by McCarthy's irresponsible charges in, the, in his anti-communist crusade, and he took after him, and he, and he made the column a major source of anti-McCarthy information. Jack Anderson said, but, but Drew, he's a good source. And Pearson said, well, he may be a good source, but he's a bad man. And that was the way he, he approached it. And I don't think any other journalist did as much damage to McCarthy as, as uh, Drew Pearson did.
You know, when I think of great, and I love the subject of, of, of great political journalists, but when I think of journalists at that time, or, or just in the past, I mean, I think of Arthur Crock of the New York Times. Uh, I think of, of course, David Broder of the Post. Um, uh, there was Walter Lippmann. But Pearson just was different from all the others. Explain why. Right. Well, you know, the others, if, if you're going to be a very important journalist in Washington, you need very important sources. And as you develop very important sources, you're very careful not to burn your sources by publishing things that are that are they're going to be upset about because they won't talk to you anymore. And there's a sort of a Washington point of view that develops. You really have to work hard not to to fall into that trap. Uh, Pearson just was determined to tell the story that nobody else was telling. And actually, other reporters would go to their editors and say, if you don't publish this story, Pearson will. And even in those cases, if the editor said, well, we're not publishing it, those reporters would slip those stories to Drew Pearson because Pearson was fearless. He would put it out there. And, of course, he was sued a lot because of this. Back in the day, in his day, it was a lot easier to sue and to win libel suits against journalists. He was sued 120 times by people who disagreed with things that he put in his column. And he won all but one of those cases. It was expensive, but he, he prevailed in the end. You know, one of the first giants he went after was uh, James Forrestal, uh, Truman's Secretary of Defense. I know that Pearson didn't like Forrestal's uh, cold warrior mentality, but, right. but Pearson went after him more for his mental instability, right? He did. He, he was beginning to hear from other members of the cabinet that uh, Forrestal was acting bizarrely at cabinet meetings. Uh, he was getting very paranoid. He thought there were Zionist spies after him. He thought there were communists after him. Uh, and this is the man who's Secretary of Defense in the beginning of the nuclear era. And so, and for, a new pre- that, and for a new president who just got right. thrown into office uh, by the death of his predecessor. Exactly. And, and uh, Forrestal was a major figure. Uh, Pearson felt that it was important for people to know what his condition was. Now, eventually, Forrestal committed suicide, and some people blamed Pearson because he published this. But Pearson said, no, he was mentally unstable, and people needed to know that. You know, I think of other people in your book. I mean, uh, the people he went after. He went after Sherman Adams, who was Eisenhower's chief of staff, and, and that led to Adams' resignation. Um, he investigated the financial irregularities of uh, of Tom Dodd of Connecticut, and, and that led to Dodd's censure by the Senate. I, I can't think of anybody who had more influence than he. Right. And some some of the people he investigated went to jail, including J. Parnell Thomas, who was the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And that committee had investigated the Hollywood 10 and sent some of those producers and writers to prison for contempt of Congress. Uh, Pearson discovered that Parnell Thomas was taking kickbacks from his staff, and he got him indicted, and he was convicted, and he wound up in the same federal penitentiary with some of the Hollywood Ten. Did I read it? Was it I think it was in your book that read that uh, after Pearson's investigation sent some people to jail, when they got out of, when they were released from prison, <laughs> he got them jobs. He did. He, you know, he was a Quaker, and he had a really uh, you know humanitarian side to him, and he felt. In some cases, if people had paid their dues and served their term and they were desperate, he would help them find jobs, and uh, and he he would uh, on a number of occasions. And in some cases, when people lost their jobs because they leaked information to him, he found them jobs. He hired them himself in some cases. 
you went through mountains of material, you know, stuff from from Pearson's diaries and, and correspondence and, and files. And was there anything that stood out the most to you and stuff you found? The most interesting collection I did was about a thousand pages of FBI records. Uh, fascinating stuff, that, which the FBI was constantly trying to figure out who was leaking to Pearson. Finally, J. Edgar Hoover started telling agencies it was impossible to find the source of the leak just to do a better job of keeping their stuff secret. But uh, it, what I saw was how Pearson and Hoover had been very close in the 1930s, and the FBI had provided a lot of information to the column and, and verified a lot of the stories over the time. But uh, because of McCarthy... And because Pearson fell out with McCarthy and, and Hoover embraced McCarthy, the two of them went separate ways. And uh, Hoover just was despised Pearson in the latter years, wrote really nasty comments on the edges of the memos that were about him. Uh, and, but at the end, whenever the FBI felt it was in their interest to leak something, they found that Washington Mary Grant was a very good source. <laughs> Does anyone come close to what Pearson was doing for 40 years? I mean, did anybody come to mind to you? Not not any particular person, but Drew Pearson was the link between the old muckrakers of the beginning of the 20th century and the post-Watergate investigative reporters. So it's after Pearson dies in 69, and it's in 72 and 73 and 74 that the Nixon administration starts to fall apart and investigative reporters really begin picking it apart. And so you get Woodward and Bernstein, and you get Seymour Hersh, and you get a whole new generation of investigative reporters. They're now collectives of investigative reporters that are doing the kind of work that, that Pearson was doing. But Pearson was doing it every day in the column. That's, that's the remarkable thing. What about WikiLeaks? Is there a comparison? Yes, in the sense, as, as his uh, staff later on said, well, it, you know, he was doing essentially what WikiLeaks was doing, but uh, but he did this over a 40-year period of time, and he did it in small installments. And because he wasn't always critical of everything, he praised things that he liked. He promoted legislation that he thought should pass, like civil rights legislation and other things like that. And he had people that he admired. He he promoted their presidential candidacies, and and uh, so so his column was a mix of things. If you picked up the paper, you could never tell what was going to be in the Washington Mary Grant. It could be, it could be an expose. It could be something on the lighter side. It could be a lot of little pieces. It could be one story. It, I think it's that the uh, the variety of it that that attracted uh, uh, readers. It scared the editors and the publishers. They were always sure they were going to be sued because of things that he, he put in there. And the Washington Post eventually took him off the editorial page and put him on the comics page, <laughs> which was sort of a, a slur. But, but Pearson figured that far more people read the comics than read the editorials. And so he was quite happy to be on the, on the comics page, or at least he said he was. But uh, his, his column was so entertaining it could fit in there. He was a, a part of him was a showman. And he liked to to capture people's imagination. He may have exaggerated some of his stories, and he may have hyped some of them, but he felt you had to get readers interested enough to actually read the story and, and pay attention to it. You know, I remember reading a, a, a William Buckley column, and William Buckley I read 
pretty often as well, you know, back in the day. And he talked about that he was forming the committee to horsewhip Drew Pearson. And I said, oh, that's kind of cute, kind of cute. And years later, you know I collect campaign buttons. Years later, I came across a button that said, the committee to horsewhip Drew Pearson. And I right. couldn't get my money out of my wallet fast enough because I knew exactly <laughs> where that came from. Exactly. And in fact, uh, uh, there was membership in the committee and uh, <laughs> Buckley sold the, the buttons for it. Uh, it was you who tipped me off to that originally. And I went and searched and I found that Buckley had written a book. The title of the book is Cancel Your Own Damn Subscription. And it's sort of uh, funny little pieces that uh, came up in Buckley's journalism. And uh, one of this was to create the committee to horsewhip Drew Pearson. <laughs> he did it because Pearson was going after Tom Dodd, the senator from Connecticut. Buckley was from Connecticut. And he th Buckley thought that uh, Pearson was going after Dodd because Dodd was a strong anti-communist. But that wasn't the issue. But, you know, Pearson was going after Dodd because Dodd was taking campaign finances and using it for personal expenses. And uh, he caught him on it enough so that that Dodd was censured by the U.S. Senate, and he was defeated when he ran for re-election. Don Ritchie is the author of the new book, The Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington. He's the historian emeritus of the United States Senate, and he has given us a great history of one of America's great reporters. It is vintage Washington, and it showed the best and sometimes the worst about journalism. Don, this is really an outstanding book. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show, and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I, you know, not that anybody cares about my recommendations, but it's a, it's, a, it's a book that everybody should be reading. It's a great book. Well, thanks. Coming from you, that's, that's high praise, and I really appreciate it. Don, thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, or cash, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Get outside. It's a gorgeous time of year. I'll see you soon. <laughs>